Awesome. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? I heard Bethany uh, speak last week, and uh, do you guys enjoy her last week? Was that pretty good? Yeah. Um, she's so awesome. I, I actually decided to go ahead and study this week because whenever she speaks, people are like, why do you even bother? I'm like, well, you know. But uh, I heard her speaking, and she said, you know, everybody, they look so good at the beach, and that's not what we look like at the beach. I look like something that washes up on the shore when I go to the beach. And I'm like, ew, what is this stuff that's in my toes? They're like, that's sand. I don't like it. Uh, but uh, I do, I've been out in nature a lot. You know, you guys, I, I get a lot of flack, mostly for things I actually say myself, and I totally deserve it. But I was out in nature this last week. Mark and I, Pastor Mark, we had an opportunity to go to Israel. So we were in Israel, Israel. If you hear me doing like, ha, 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 talking like that, it's because I've been there this last week. So I want to start telling people my name is, you know. And uh, they didn't like that joke over there um, a whole lot. But uh, we had a great time in Israel. So we were, we were over there and uh, did a lot of walking and, uh, it, it, you know, nature and all kinds of things. But I want to show you guys a couple pictures if you want to see. This is like slideshow uh, and you all have to look. Okay. Uh, so just in case anybody didn't believe us, like, no, we were really there. There's a, a picture. Uh, that's from the Mount of Olives looking over to the Temple Mount. And that's Jerusalem right there. This is the Sea of Galilee, and uh, pretty amazing. Go ahead and go to the next one. Uh, ooh, tripping over here. So this is Mark and I on the Mount of Beatitudes. And then I didn't want my man card to get revoked, so I want to show you what I ate. This is legit right here. That was tilapia, I think, caught in the Sea of Galilee. And I'm looking like I didn't like it, but I enjoyed it. I ate it down to the bones. I mean, it was really good. Deep fried, I was digging in. And how many of you know when your food can look back at you while you eat it, that's a manly thing to do? <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, when Chuck Norris eats steak, he leaves the head on too. You know what I mean? Because you want to stare, you want your food to know like I own you and it's staring back at you at the same moment. <laughs> this church is weird. Okay, so moving. <laughs> this was us in Israel. Uh, this is, okay, so before they play the next video, how many of you grew up watching Indiana Jones? Yes. How many of you wish you could carry a whip just all the time? I would hurt myself more than what I would ever do to anyone else, but this was my Indiana Jones moment. So go ahead and play the next video here. This is me in a tunnel. So when we're in a 2,000-year-old uh, tunnel, and it evolved, like 2,000 years old, dating from the time of Christ. And the stones you can see, that's not reflecting this exact spot right here. The stones I can see above my head were Jesus walking those stones. <laughs> Definitely the coolest thing I've ever done. If you, if you like uh, wide open spaces and are a little bit claustrophobic, this would not be the thing to do. The tour guide starts us off. He, before we go in, Mark remembers this. He's like, okay, if you're a little bit bigger, you're going to need to be just take this under advisement whether you go through this tunnel or not because there's a spot where it gets really narrow. And it really wasn't that bad, but he got in our heads up front. And there is a spot where they put this plastic and you have to squeeze through, you know, turn sideways and squeeze through. And I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't love that. And uh, a lot of it, you were kind of crouched down about this high too. So it, it was a little bit scary, but it was really cool to be there in Israel. And I highly encourage if you have the opportunity to go and visit. Uh, beautiful people, beautiful country, great food. If you like pita and hummus and fish like that, you know, 
Uh, they have all kinds of things, just a wonderful place at a really, really good time. And it was so cool to be able to see the, the truth and the, the representation of things that we read about in the Bible and see them there uh, in stone and see these locations. So I, I, one of the things that really was moving to me is that the, the, in the Kidron Valley in between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem is where the Garden of Gethsemane is at. And I remember thinking my whole life that Gethsemane was like on the Mount of Olives and it was up high, but it's not, it's actually at the base. And I, and I just, it being there and looking up and realizing Jesus in that moment would have seen the temple and all the ramifications of everything, you know, just kind of to be there and be able to, to be inside of the story was really cool. So I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a lot of flying. I don't know if you realize this, but Israel's a long ways away. It's sort of a little bit farther than um, Springfield. You know, it, it's, it's definitely a, a trek. So we, our flight on the way back was 15 hours and you get to know the people around you, you know, unfortunately. So anyways, that's, that's what I was doing the last couple of weeks and uh, it was a good time, but I'm, I'm grateful to be back. And I'm excited to be here today to continue in the series on Philippians that we've been in. And uh, just to give everybody, bring everybody back up to speed, uh, Philippians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, which is somewhere in Macedonia in the Mediterranean. It's a letter that he wrote thousands of years ago to the Christians in that day and age, but it remains as valuable and applicable as it was to them. It remains that to us today. And as we follow Jesus and pursue Christ, there's so much worth and value in this letter. One of the themes of this letter of Philippians is about joy. And how many of you think that's appropriate, right? We're joy church, right? We we're a place of joy. We don't want to be uh, the kind of church where you go, man, I'm glad to be at church today, I guess. You know, we want to be excited and full of the joy of the Lord and, and enjoying our relationship with Christ. And so Paul talks about joy a lot in this letter. And I want to share in Philippians chapter three, we're actually going to read the entire chapter. Don't worry, I will get you out of here in time to beat all the other churches to the best restaurants. So never fear. Uh, that's what Jesus would do, right? Get in front of the line. No, I'm kidding, but... Um, but we're going to read through the entire chapter, and I'm just going to give you a couple of thoughts about the joy of knowing Jesus. You know, one of the things that you're never going to get at Joy Church is you're not just going to get, you know, three steps to live a marginally better life. You can get that from Dr. Phil or Oprah. Uh, we're here to preach Christ. We're here to talk about Jesus. We, we really do believe that he's not just the answer to every question in Sunday school. Who died for your sins? Jesus. Who rose from the dead? Jesus. No, but he really is the answer to everything in life, that he is the, the supreme worth and value. He's the target that we should be aiming at. And that when you know Jesus, you, you're, not, uh, you're not missing out, you're getting everything. So we're gonna talk about the joy of knowing Jesus today. But I wanna start us off in Philippians chapter three, verse one. Paul starts this letter. He says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. Now, Paul starts right off the bat, he starts talking about joy. And he says, listen, I don't get sick about talking about the joy of knowing Jesus. I never get tired of it because it's good to the last drop. When you know Christ, uh, everything in your life is different and it changes. Those of you that have met Jesus in a real way that know Jesus, know that there's like uh, BC and uh, AD, it works in your life too, right? Before Christ, and then AD doesn't mean after, it means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Anyways, AD, like after you experience Christ, when you know him, everything is different and changes. And so you don't get sick about talking about Jesus. You don't get sick of it. And Paul says, listen, I want you to listen to this because I do it to safeguard your faith. Now, a lot of people 
especially Christians, maybe been Christians for a long time, we think that our faith is under assault, and it is, but we miss where the actual assault is coming from. Because we think, oh, it's sinful people are assaulting the Christian faith. Well, perhaps, but that's not where the real attack is. Well, it's, it's, it's this side of the political aisle, whether you're liberal or, or conservative or whatever, you think the other side is the devil, and it works both ways. We're all the devil, really. So anyways, um, you can laugh more than that. I mean, I'm trying my best, you guys. I'm jet lagged. I mean, <laughs> Thank you. I don't know who that was. Ushers? All right. Um, but we think the assault is coming from the bad people or the assault is coming from other churches or whatever. The real assault against your faith is the enemy coming to steal the joy, to steal the, the joy out of your relationship with Christ. You know, a lot of people have gone through uh, divorce and a lot of people have gone through marriage problems. And did you know that it's very, very hard to pinpoint when the real divorce or when, the really, when it really died? It wasn't the day you signed the papers. It was the day when the joy was gone. Listen, listen to me. We are, okay. <laughs> Preachers just say that when they need to figure out what to say next. The moment that the devil wins in your life is when he gets your relationship with Jesus to be about duty, to be about religion, to be about keeping score, to be about uh, your right, own righteousness and, and how you're measuring up in your, your mind, uh, thinking, am I having a good day as a Christian or a bad day? When it stops being about just the, the pure, unadulterated joy of knowing Jesus, that's when he's won. And so Paul says, listen, I want to guard your faith. I want to, I want to uh, put, a, put a wall around it so that you don't get your joy stolen because let me just tell you there, it's nothing more dangerous to the darkness than a Christian who is full of joy. You see, a lot of people have encountered Christians who are not full of joy. You wanna know my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? No. <laughs> You're gonna have less fun, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm good, you know? But when you are wrapped up in Christ in your relationship and you are full of the joy of the Holy Spirit, connected with who God's made you to be, no longer a slave to this world and the things of this world. And when you are free and you have joy in Jesus, come on, you are unstoppable. People want to get around you. They want to see it. So Paul says, hey, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And I love this because he says, whatever happens. In other words, circumstances are going to come. Circumstances are going to go. But when you know Jesus, when you, have a re when you rejoice in your relationship with Christ in the Lord, it doesn't matter what happens, you can still be joyful. G.K. Chesterton said, happiness depends upon what happens, but joy is a different matter. Listen, when you belong to Christ, it doesn't matter what happens, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, Huskies win the Civil War, they don't win, the Ducks win, whatever, good, bad. I can't think of anything worse right now than the Huskies winning the Civil War, but whatever it is, when you have Christ and you're in that relationship with him, your joy supersedes that. It's so powerful. And what Paul is talking about here when he says rejoice in the Lord is not, uh, he, he, he's talking about the fact, it literally means this word rejoice, a delight in God's grace. It means to be excited and joyful in the relationship itself. Not having joy in God as if God gives you a bunch of things and that provides you joy. Not a transactional relationship, a real relationship. Just to illustrate this, when I got back from Israel, I, I flew in to LA and then we had a flight up to Eugene and I came out of the 
uh, into the terminal in Eugene. My family was there, my wife, my kids, and my kids, they had signs and Bethany had a Dutch Brothers for me, praise the Lord, you know, and I just, I dumped it on my head, you know, and I started dancing, you know, I was really going for it. I was excited to be home and, and, uh, and my kids ran up and they're, they're jumping on me and we're laughing and we're, you know, cutting up and every single person around at the terminal has a huge smile on their face because you can't fake that kind of joy. And you know, my kids, when, when I was leaving, they were openly weeping. Uh, and I was like acting like tough, like, oh, I got something in my eye. You know, I was crying too. And Bethany was crying and she was crying because she was going to have to be with the three kids for two weeks. But, <laughs> but I was crying, you know, and the kids are crying and we're all crying when I had to leave. And it wasn't because we had this wonderful day. We'd all been fighting, you know, probably five minutes before and Shut up, Jack. No, Jack, Penny, get your hand off me. Get your foot off me. Poopy. You know, I mean, everything that happens in a day-to-day world and basis with three little kids. But then in that moment when I'm leaving, my daughter, Evie's weeping. Daddy, why do you have to go? I'm like, well, I have to go on this trip. Why? Where there is great love, there is the potential for deep sorrow and also deep joy. And our relationship with Christ needs to be like that where there's some, there's some life and some love and some passion, dare I say. Uh, there's some, some vim and some vigor. There's, there's, there's a depth to it. There's an authenticity to it. And in the terminal, when I got back, my kids weren't like, oh, yay, dad's back. And that means that, you know, the things that dad does for us, they don't even know what I do in life. And I, don't, I guess they don't really do much. I don't know what I do either. But it wasn't transactional. They were just excited to see me. And that's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Just to be excited that you get to be connected with Jesus and that he's connected with you. What if we, what if we treated marriage in this way where it was like only transactional? Well, you know, when you do the things that I want you to do, then we have love. And when I do the things, that's not how it works. There's, there's something that's romantic about choosing someone good and bad apart from what that person's gonna do for you. That's not romance, that's called prostitution. Do you hear what I'm saying? When there's a transaction involved, it's not romance. And yet with God, we often turn our faith and our religion into transactions. Well, if I do the right stuff, then God will put out the right stuff that he's supposed to put out. If I pray, he blesses me. If I go to church, then my kids grow up healthy. If I put money in the offering, then X, Y, Z. You guys get what I'm saying? And, and Paul's saying, no, listen, that's not joy. That's, that's religion, that's works, that's uh, you know, earning something. But I want you to rejoice in the Lord. And I do this, he's saying, to safeguard your faith. The real faith is about that kind of a real relationship. Okay, let's move on. So in verse two, he goes on, he says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now you're like, hang on a second. We made a transition here. We were talking about joy now we're talking about surgery. <laughs> yeah. We don't talk a lot about circumcision now. I mean, maybe you do, but I don't. Um, hey, Bob, how's it going? How was your circumcision? <laughs> Pretty good, Ed. <laughs> All right, see you back at the... <laughs> no, we don't talk about it. But in this day and age, Paul comes out of the Jewish nation. He comes out of this culture. And there's this interface between the Gentile Christians, those that were not Jewish, and the Jewish Christians. And there was a group of people called the Judaizers. And they went around trying to tell people, hey, to really be connected with God, you have to keep all these rules that come from the Jewish faith. And this is what Paul's talking about. And he's saying, 
watch out for these people who say you must be circumcised. Because again, what's happening, it's coming after the joy. It's coming after the real authentic, authentic relationship. And he goes on, verse three, for we who worship by the spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Paul's gonna just lay it down right here. He's basically gonna say, don't bring that in my house. This is what he's gonna say here. I mean, I'm translating a little bit into modern vernacular. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And here's what Paul's saying. If you want to play the earn it game, I got you all beat because I'm like a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I have it all going on. I, I knew my stuff. I had crossed uh, every T and dotted every I. I had it going on uh, in this sort of game that we're playing, talking about religion and earning it and doing everything the right way. But he, but he goes on and he says in verse seven, I once thought these things were valuable. He's describing a change that took place. He says, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. So he says, hey, I gave my entire life to doing things the right way, but that was old and busted. And now knowing Jesus is the new hotness. That was good. Okay, that was good. That was the men in black quote. Nobody, okay, thank you. Trying to do it the old way, old and busted, knowing Christ, the new hotness. Like this is the old, obsolete, outdated. This is the new. And Paul says, everything that I gave my life to that I thought was worth pursuing and giving everything for, when I found Jesus, it shifted. And listen to what he describes here. He says, but I now consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, I am not a mathematician. I did not stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Uh, I, I'm bad at math. And those of you that know me know this is true. And I was on the trip and I, a few times I tried to do equations and Mark would be like, no, it's not correct. And I'm like, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. And, you know, it's... but infinite, as far as I know, means it goes on forever. Meaning that when you know Jesus, there's no stop. There's no threshold at which the worth and value ever ceases. It's a relationship that when you get inside of it, it actually gets better and better as it grows and it never gets worse and it never stops getting better. And Paul is saying, listen, I had it all going on. I had it all. I was, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews. I was circumcised at the right time. I was a Pharisee. I, I had it all dialed in. But when I came to know Christ and discovered the joy in Christ, I found out that everything else was worthless compared to that infinite value of knowing him, the joy of knowing Jesus. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became righteous or become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Now, this verse finishes an entire thought that started in verse one. And what he's saying to the Philippians, just to kind of sum it up to this point, and then we'll move forward. But he's saying, hey, whatever happens in life, circumstances are gonna come and gonna go. 
A lot of people, their life is like a sailboat without a rudder that gets blown back and, back and forth across the lake of life by circumstances. Good things happen, they go this way. Bad things happen, they go this way. Paul says, listen, whatever happens, have your joy in the Lord. Rejoice, enjoy your relationship with him, okay? And he says, I'm gonna guard your faith. And then he explains why he's guarding it because there's a mentality that's gonna come to steal your joy, which is where you try to earn your way to God. And that's what he's just described. But he says, listen, the real secret, the real sauce, the real good stuff is when you understand that you get everything that God has for you by putting your faith in Christ and that the rest of all that stuff is just garbage in comparison. Okay. It's just garbage in comparison. It's street rubbish. It's not worth anything. How many of you would say, hey, when I came to know Jesus, I realized that what I thought was of worth and value in my life, what I'd lived for up to that point, whether it was a career or pursuit of relationships or pursuit of money or pursuit of power, whatever it was, that you realize that it's worth nothing. That when you know Jesus, that just pales in comparison. And Paul is describing this. And then in verse 10, this is the hinge point. This is the, the, the crux of this passage of scripture. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know him and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. You see, early Christians were not interested in just becoming a Christian to exchange one set of intellectual ideas for another. Paul is saying, actually knowing Jesus for me is not just about these ideas are better than these ideas. No, there's actually something that is transformative in a relationship with Christ that he has his eyes on. And this is gonna set up the rest of the passage. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Many people have zero clue what Christianity is about, including Christians. Because many times you'll say, hey, somebody, why are you a Christian? And they'll say, well, my friend invited me to church. No, that's how you came to church or how you became a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Well, you know, Jesus died for me and loves me and he gave his life for my sins. Okay, that's fine. That's true, but why are you a Christian? Let me just clear this up for you. The point of all of this is resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, physically, uh, per, you know, actually rise from, raise from the dead, come back from the dead, then everything that we're doing here is meaningless and, and silly. Because we are basically, we, our entire faith is rooted and founded on this one core idea that Jesus rose from the dead, this idea of resurrection life. And early Christians really got this, that what set Christianity apart from every other faith and religion and everything was the fact that there's an empty tomb. Every other world religion does not have an empty tomb, okay? And Mark and I actually saw several, what could be the empty tomb. There's a lot of empty tombs in Jerusalem. The good news is that Jesus isn't in any of them, right? <laughs> Everybody has an idea. This is the one. This is the one. One guy was talking himself into it at one of the places and I was cracking up because I'm like, it doesn't matter. He's not here, right? But, um, but it was cool. But Jesus isn't there. Resurrection life is like where it hinges. So, so stay with me here. He says, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And then he goes on, verse 12. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. 
What's the perfection he's talking about? He's talking about eternal life, resurrection life, God's original intention for creation. Human beings were created to be in relationship with God and with one another and live forever. That was the, 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 God's original intention in the Garden of Eden. This is what Paul's talking about here that we should have our focus on. And I'll make, it'll be clear here in a second. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. What's the heavenly prize? It's not a big stuffed animal, right? It's not a trophy. The heavenly prize is not the reward that you get for living a faithful life. The heavenly prize is eternal life. The heavenly prize is that death will be finally defeated at the end of history when God brings everything, wipes every tear from their eye. Come on. Uh, when every knee bows before Jesus, death will be the final thing that is rendered defeated uh, and that goes away and eternal life. This is the prize that Paul's talking about. And he says, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you, which is a really kind of nice way of saying you're wrong and God's going to show you if you think that otherwise. <laughs> but we must hold on to the progress we have already made. What's the progress he's talking about? He's saying we used to think a different way, but now we've moved on to thinking in a new way. We used to think that we had to earn our way to God and we could do all these things and take a, uh, the ritual bath and clean our hands and pray certain prayers and that religion was going to make us right with God, but we've progressed. We've made a step forward and now we need to hold on to that and not go back. And he says, um, sorry guys, lost my place. Okay, verse 17, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he explains what this means. And I'll, and I'll talk about why this is so important here and why this fits into this passage. He says, they are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. Why would a person who only thinks about life here on earth be an enemy of the cross of Christ? Because the cross of Christ symbolizes the fact that what we had here was broken and busted and that fulfillment would never be found here and that somebody had to die and give their life to make a way for us to get into the new thing that God wanted to do. Therefore, when a person only gives themselves to this world and the appetites, he's not just talking about hunger and thirst. He's talking about your appetite for, for sex, your appetite for money, your appetite for power, your appetite for uh, pleasure, your appetite for anything that you would satisfy yourself apart from God, or even good things that God wants you to crave and wants you to have, but out of order or in, in excess. When you give yourself to that, you are an enemy of the cross of Christ. Because what you are saying is, I find my fulfillment here in this life. And so he goes on in verse 20. He says, but we are citizens of heaven. And again, in this passage, you see a comparison and a contrast again and again. Here's the old way. Here's what the cross of Christ, the enemies of the cross look like. But this is what we are. We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. 
Now, the second passage, the second part of the letter, it hinges on verse 10 and 11, where Paul begins to talk about resurrection life. And he finishes this passage right here with kind of a flourish as he's talking about what God's intention is. And what we see here is a reminder of what our Christian faith is really about. The resurrection of our bodies and the restoration of creation. Now, this is meaningful. And why you need to understand this is because if you don't get the goal, you're gonna get lost along the way, right? When, 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 you, when you talk to Siri and you're like, hey, Siri, you know, and whatever she says back, I don't know, you know, yes, sir, I don't know. Or, hey, Alexa, how do I get to Taco Vor? How do I get to, uh, what's another good restaurant, you know? How do I get to, um, I was gonna say Hometown Buffet, but no, just in my mind. I don't know. You know, you have to give them a final destination and then they can build a pathway. A lot of Christians are trying to live their Christian life with no idea of where you're headed or what it's about. How do you make decisions here and now? How do you make decisions on Monday morning and Tuesday morning? And how do you make decisions at work and at school and with your family and your wife and your kids? How do you make decisions about how to live your life if you don't know what it's about? You see, we're going towards resurrection life as followers of Jesus, and we're working towards the restoration and the repair of this creation, both physically and also emotionally, intellectually, in relationships. The thing that is wrong with the world, this thing we call sin and evil that is infested in and impacted our, our world, God wants to make it right. And we get to be participants with Jesus in, in bringing it back to what God intended it to be but we have to see this as the point of our faith. You see a Christian who is full of joy, which is the first part of this letter, is dangerous to the darkness. Why? Because they are not, uh, they're not just playing a part, they are real. Like when my kids were running up to me in the airport and everybody's like, like looking on and smiling, they realize this isn't like, this isn't an acting. This isn't like a fake kind of made up thing. This is real joy. A family that actually loves each other. And so Paul starts off in the beginning of this letter and says, hey, we need to rejoice in the Lord no matter what happens. Real, authentic joy, not that you earn, but because of what Jesus has done for you. But then understand the point of all of this is that we're heading towards resurrection, all right? And when you bring these two things together, you get a picture of what the Christian faith should be like. Most people that reject Christianity reject it for the wrong reasons, one of our jobs as followers of Christ is to help people only reject the Christian faith for the right reasons. Did you know that a lot of people will reject the Christian faith? But most people in our culture reject it for the wrong reasons. Here's a good reason to reject the Christian faith. I can save myself. I don't need a savior. That's a good reason to reject the Christian faith. That one is a no-go, right? That doesn't work. If you say, I can save myself and you don't need Jesus, then there's no way for you to get involved. Do you hear what I'm saying today? But many people are rejecting the Christian faith because they see no authenticity or life or joy. They see in the followers of Jesus, no understanding of where it's going and what it's about and no real power and impact. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, dwells within us. Where is the evidence of the resurrection life inside of you, Christian? Where is it? Does the world look at you and say, wow, I don't know if I believe in that Jesus thing because it's kind of kooky and weird and I don't really like K-Love or Christian music, but, uh, but I can't deny that there's something about this person that's different than the way the rest of the world is operating. 
So I just want to give you today four thoughts about the joy of knowing Jesus. And we've been talking through this passage. The first one is that you get untouchable joy. When you come to know Christ, your joy is not about what happens. That's happiness. Your joy is something untouchable by circumstance. And this is a beautiful thing. When you belong to Jesus, no circumstance can steal your joy. There's some amazing stories in the New Testament, like the Apostle Paul one day, the guy that wrote this letter, was actually in prison, and it wasn't three hots in a cot, and he didn't get to watch ESPN. It wasn't anything like what our maybe mindset of prison is, bad or good. It was much worse. And at one point, he was in a Roman prison, actually, I think in Philippi, actually the city where he wrote this letter to. And when they went to this place, archaeologically, they uncovered, they found out that the way they would do this is they would actually chain prisoners to the ground facing up. Now, I want you to think about how vulnerable you would feel lying in your filth and excrement because you don't, there's no bathroom break and your arms are chained, you know, or manacled down to the floor. So you're very vulnerable, exposed, cold, hungry, whatever in this prison. And we hear about Paul and his, and his guy Silas that about midnight in that state, in that condition they're in, they begin to praise God. Uh, that's a story that happened in this city that Paul's writing this letter to. And God delivers them if you know that whole story. But you think about what, what would cause you in that state of affairs to begin to praise God and worship God. It's like really hard to comprehend, isn't it? Because if your faith or your joy is circumstantial, those circumstances should steal it. How many of you go through times where like, apart from Christ, you'd have no joy? When you get a diagnosis that is, you know, that you don't wanna get. And you go, man, if I didn't have Christ, my joy would be gone. We live in a, in a nation which is about the pursuit of happiness, but happiness can be taken from you. Joy cannot, because joy belongs in an entirely different sphere. When you know Jesus, you get untouchable joy. Number two, when you know Jesus, you get the joy of positional righteousness. And I could preach a whole sermon on this. I won't. I see the fear in your eyes. I will not. People are like, you showed us a picture of that fish and I'm ready to go. I want to eat. Some of you were probably like, turned off by that, but it was really good, actually. Positional righteousness. In verse 9, Paul talks about this. He says, uh, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Simply meaning this, you have to trust in Jesus to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And when you do that, the scripture tells us we become the righteousness of God in Christ. Meaning when God looks at you to bring, you know, to render judgment on your deeds and who you are, your life, he sees Jesus. It's called justification, just as if I'd never sinned. It's positional righteousness. It's a beautiful theological truth that we see expounded again and again and again in the scriptures that we are positionally righteous. And how beautiful is this? That when we know Jesus, that we are in him, the righteousness of God in Christ, we don't stand in our own righteousness, but, but we stand in his righteousness and we are hidden with Christ in God. Number three, uh, we are given heavenly citizenship. And this is so cool because this will change your life. And I want you to lean in for a few more minutes because this right here will change your life if you can grasp it. That when you experience salvation, it doesn't just mean that you get to go to heaven when you die. That's really not the point. Um, and I could uh, preach about this for a really long time, but really what is going on is you've been, you've been given heavenly citizenship and now you get to participate with God 
in what his new kingdom reality is, that he wants to bring back a restoration of what he started in the Garden of Eden, the thing that sin kind of got off track. And you get heavenly citizenship. It says it in verse 20, we are citizens of heaven. You belong to a new kingdom. You wear a new uniform. Your life is, is, is about more than just satisfying your cravings for whatever you want on a daily basis. Your life is about being an agent of subversive good. You get to fight against the powers and machinations of darkness and despair and destruction in this world. You get to, to, get to overcome evil with good. You have now been brought into a new kingdom. You belong to a new system and structure and you don't have to fight against the Democrats or fight against the Republicans because when you're doing that, you're simply giving the enemy, the real enemy, uh, power and strength and glorifying him. But instead you get to love everybody else, including your enemies, which is a supernatural thing because you belong to a new kingdom and you're not a citizen of this planet anymore. You now wear the the, the uniform of the new creation. Come on, I could preach on this for a long time. But let me just say right now, when you are a follower of Jesus and you wake up in the morning, there should never be a day where you don't say there's something for me to do. And I matter today. One of the, the, the epidemics in our society today is young people that have no purpose because what they've been taught from the day they were born is you're the center of the universe. You know what you find out when you hit about 16 or 17 years old and you realize that if you really are the center of the universe, that the center of the universe sucks? Is you realize if there's not something more to give yourself to, then it's a pretty bleak existence. And so we see an increase in suicide. We see an increase in futility. We see an increase in people pursuing a virtual digital life where people give years of their life into video games where they can feel like they're accomplishing something. Why? Because you should be accomplishing something. Because you were created for purpose. Come on, we sit, where's it at? Here it is. You were made on purpose and for a purpose. You were formed in the image of God. And though sin has derailed your destiny, when God comes and he saves you, you get put back onto the game board. And now it's time for you to make a difference as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and become an agent of subversive good. And you get to wake up in the morning and say, come on, my life matters because Jesus loves me and gave himself for me and I'm redeemed in a new purpose. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. In Christ, we are restored image bearers, the Imago Dei. We are the reflection of God's goodness into a dark place. And number four, the joy of knowing Jesus. We are also given resurrection life, which is the true hope of the Christian faith eternal life. That is our hope. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me just tell you that your life can be good, your life can be bad, but it can never, you can never have joy if it stops existing. The, the final enemy that we face, and, and really it's kind of personified in sin, we see it, but what happened in the Garden of Eden was death got into our system. And through Christ, you, can, you have the antidote to defeat death so that you will live forever. And everything that death has touched, I feel like the Lion King right now, you know, everything the light touches, everything that death has touched, every relationship that it has broken, every part of your body that stops working and falling apart, you know, you cross 30 and stuff stops working, you know, you're like, my knee doesn't work anymore. What is it? It's death. 
in our mortal bodies. It's death in our society. Why is there darkness and brokenness? We had an opportunity to go through the Holocaust Memorial and 1.5 million children were, were killed, were murdered. And you go, this is nonsense. What is it? It's death in this plane of existence. And so Christians, come on, you're not, you don't become a Christian so you can come hear some guy talk to you on Sunday mornings. We are in this for resurrection life. It's bigger than just this group of people here and it's bigger than a city. It's what God is doing in history. It's what God is doing throughout the whole world. And we get to be a part of it and not just participate uh, in it and doing things. We get to participate in, in that it comes and it dwells on the inside of us. Resurrection life is our portion and our inheritance in Jesus' name. Come on, how many of you are excited to know Jesus today and experience the joy? Hey, if you're here today and you're like, okay, this sounds good. I thought I was gonna go see Deadpool, but I walked into this church in a movie theater. Like, you got me, you know? I just wanna let you know, maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ. I'm not gonna embarrass you, single you out or anything. What I just wanna let you know is God didn't, you're not here by accident. He brought you here to this moment so you could hear his word, so you could hear that he loves you, that your life has value and meaning and that Jesus gave everything for you and for me. And so if you wanna pray with me today and just put your faith in Christ and become his follower, I wanna invite you to do that. Let's all pray together. Would you just pray this with me? Dear Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know that I am part of the problem but I thank you for your grace and mercy revealed to me at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be right with God. I give you my life, the good and the bad, and I ask you to be my Lord and Savior in Jesus' name. Amen.